BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Different generations love to cast aspersions on each other. Boomers think millennials and Gen Zers are fragile narcissists. Those younger generations think that boomers are selfish, closed-minded pinheads who help themselves to economic success and then pull the ladder out for everyone else. But are these and other generational stereotypes true? Here to unpack that question for us is Gene Twangy, professor of psychology and the author of Generations, the real differences between Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, boomers, and silence, and what they mean for America's future. We begin our conversation with some background on the study of generations and why Gene thinks the Strauss-Howe theory of generational cycles has been disrupted. We then work our way through the generations, from the silent generation to the present, and talk about the characteristics and particular challenges of each cohort. We dig into the myths and truths of the generations, such as whether boomers are doing financially well and millennials are doing financially poorly. We talk about why Gen X gets overlooked, why there's such a sharp break between millennials and Gen Z, why Gen Zers are taking longer to get their driver's licenses and feel darkly pessimistic, and much more. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is generations. All right, Dr. Gene Twangy, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you are a psychologist and you've spent your career researching, writing, and speaking about generational differences. And you've published several books before your latest book, uh, Generations. You've published a book about Generation X, about millennials, and then your latest was about Generation Z. And what's great about your work is that it's not based on anecdotes. It's all data-driven. You have all these charts and you have access to data that a lot of lay people don't have access to where you're backing up these claims you're making about the traits of these generational cohorts. cohorts. That's really what it's all about. I mean, of course, it's great to have stories and interviews with real people as well. And I, I, I rely on that too. But really the bread and butter is that we have these huge surveys, often going back decades, of millions and millions of people. These are amazing resources, and we can compare the generations when they were the same age. And because we have big numbers, we can look at the average differences and be pretty confident we know what we're seeing. Some of these also have data on behaviors as well as attitudes and the way people spend their time and what's important to them and political beliefs and all kinds of things. So each project, the universe of data just keeps getting bigger. And for my previous book for iGen about Gen Z, it's about 11 million people, four data sets. And this one is 25 data sets on 39 million people. Wow. 
Okay, so let's talk about uh, generations. I think it's a topic that that fascinates a lot of people. They're interested in the topic. Definitions first. How do you define a generation? So generations at one point meant generations in a family. And now we use them much more to mean social generations. They're about how when you grow up, how that influences your life choices, your time use, your family patterns, just everything. And historically, people grouped generations based on birth year. And there's reasonable agreement on birth year cutoffs. So I've used those birth year cutoffs in the book. There's a chapter on each generation. And it just allows us to compare people. Very similar to the way that another researcher might look at age differences and group people who are in their 20s versus those who are in their 30s or in their 40s. How we compare people who live in different countries. That there's lots of variation within these groups as well as between them. But if you're going to do research and really try to wrap your mind around the differences are, you have to group people somehow. What do you say to the criticism? I've heard this when I, because I get, I really get into this topic and I've had this conversation with friends and they're like, oh, this whole generational, like there's generations like has a certain personality trait or blah, blah, blah. Like that's not a thing. It's sort of like horoscopes and it's, you're painting with too broad a brush to actually be useful. What's your response to that criticism? Well, if they're getting this from a lot of the stuff that has, you know, it is out there on generations, I can understand why people, <laughs> a lot of people have that, that viewpoint, because there is a lot of stuff out there on generations that will make statements that are not, you know, really backed up. But when you look at this universe of survey data that's available now, you don't have to guess. You can really look at what the differences actually are. And it is absolutely true that generations group people born in these 15 to 20 year periods, and there's lots of differences between them. But that's true of any study of group differences. And I don't think anybody disputes that living now is completely different from what it was like to live 50 years ago or 100 years ago. That's usually not what people are arguing over. We know that. And given that, there are generational differences, period. No matter how you cut the data, there are differences based on when you were born. I don't think people dispute that. I think, which basically means we're pretty much in agreement. We're just quibbling over the details. Right. And what do you do about, I think the other thing people get nitpicky about is the cutoff dates, right? It's like, well, you know, I was born in 1982. So am I a millennial or Gen Xer? Like, what do you do with those borderline cases? Basically, you draw a line and acknowledge that it's somewhat fuzzy. So I've certainly drawn lines in this book. I had to, to be able to just group the generations into chapters and, and, and do data analyses and so on. But one way I tried to get around that in the book is a lot of the figures show all of the years. Mm. So certainly some of them I have are grouped in bigger chunks of people, but a lot of them are year by year. And then you can see that, yes, there was change between people born at the beginning of the millennial generation to the end of the millennial generation, for example. That's absolutely true. And I've tried to document that. Okay. So, yeah, depending on where you're born in that generation, you could have more or less of certain traits, for example. Yeah. On average, 
you can definitely see those trends often build on themselves from one year to the next. Do you find people who are born in those borderline areas, do they end up being a hybrid of both generational traits? Like there's like a you know guy who's born on the cusp of baby boomer Gen X. I think there are people who are born on those cusps who just based on where they grew up or experiences they had or their own personal characteristics feel more like they belong in one generation versus the other. And I, th- I think that's absolutely valid. How can generational trends influence you as an individual, even if you're an outlier to those generational trends? So for example, you know, some guy reads an article about millennials and millennials are this and they're like, well, I'm not like that. How are they still influenced by the larger trends amongst their generational cohort? Yeah, so there's a couple things here. First, there's a common idea that if you can find one exception, then the rule isn't true. And of course, that isn't how it works. These are differences based on averages. There's going to be plenty of variation. There's going to be plenty of people who do not necessarily fit um, the average for their group. Even those people, though, are influenced by being born at a certain time in the experiences that they have, you know, particularly around technology is the argument that I make in the book. But in other ways too, you know, some of the downstream effects of technology, like that people take longer to grow up. So I use the example in the book of say a Gen Zer today, who's um, a young man who's 22, just graduated from college. And he's decided, or he decided last year, you know, I really want to get married like right after college. So that would be an unusual choice for someone of his generation. So he has to find another young woman who is willing to get married at 21 or 22. There's going to be a lot fewer of those than there would have been had he been a boomer or or a member of the silent generation. And then let's say he finds that young woman. They do get married at age 22. They're going to be the only ones in their peer group who are married, probably, especially if they're college graduates. They decide to have kids a couple years later. They're going to be the only ones who are parents. You know, their experience is going to be very different from a member of the silent generation who married at that age where all of their friends and peers were doing the same thing. No, yeah, you gave another example too about the kids thing, how the generational cohort you belong to can influence that. So let's say you, you're a Gen Zer and you want kids. Well, the trend show, we'll talk about this here later on, the trend show Gen Z's not really interested in having kids like the silent generation or boomers. And so there's going to be less services for your kids, less products for your kids. People on airplanes, you know, they might not like having kids on airplanes. They're not used to it. So if you bring your toddler on an airplane, people are like, why are you bring your toddler on the airplane? It has all these downstream effects you don't think about. Exactly. Yeah. If you are the exception, especially when it comes to some of these things around careers or marriage or having kids, then what your generation does, what the average does is still going to have an impact on you. So we've had Neil Howe on the podcast talk about his theory of the generational turnings. How is his theory of generations different from your theory? So their theory, Strauss and Howe, their theory is the generations come in cycles of four different types. And Their 1991 book makes a really amazing case for this. But I think that the acceleration in technological change has thrown a wrench into those cycles. It's really thrown them off. And I think you can see that especially in the more recent generations. Gen Z is a good example. So by their theory of generational cycles, Gen Z is supposed to be like the silent generation 
well, Silent Generation has some political activism. There might be some similarity there. But that's about as far as it goes. Silent Generation married young, had a lot of children, and that is not what's happening with Gen Z. The old And the oldest of Gen Z, I have to point out, are 28. So we do know it's not happening. And we know from surveys that they say this is not what they want. At least they want children less than previous generations. So clearly something is off. So the theory that I rely on in this book is that cultural change and thus generational change primarily comes from changes in technology. That has the biggest impact on how we live and how we spend our time. And it also has two really big downstream effects, which explain why the generational cycles have broken down. One is individualism, which is very linear change, more focus on the self and less on others. Probably explains why millennials didn't turn out the way they were supposed to. They were supposed to be like the greatest generation, very civically oriented and communal. Yeah. Very little data backs that up. Didn't happen. In fact, it's the opposite. It just basically didn't happen. The millennials have lots of strengths. I'm not suggesting they're you know bad or any of that. It's not not what I'm communicating. It's just they didn't fit the theory. And then the other piece is the slow life strategy. As technology advances, people live longer. Education takes longer to finish. And so the entire developmental trajectory from infancy to old age slows down. And so that's one reason why Gen Z, for example, is not getting married young and having kids young. So individualism means that's not as attractive. And then the slow life strategy means that when it does happen, it's going to happen later. And we certainly saw that with millennials as well, that they got married later and had kids later than previous generations because of this overall trend of the slow life strategy. Okay. So the Strauss-Howe theory says that there are four basic generation types and that each generation has their own like particular set of values and characteristics. And that these generational archetypes, they cycle through like every 80 years or so. And Strauss-Hauer, they argue that the characteristics of a generation are created or developed by big historical events. So things like world wars, economic depressions, things like that. What you're arguing is that technology and the individualism that has grown out of technology, and then also that things are just, it's taking longer to reach certain milestones in life those things have disrupted the pattern that Strauss and Howe found. And I think also in just in general, what you're seeing is that because each generation is experiencing these milestones at different times, like when they get married, graduate college, have kids, all those things have shifted. So each generation is going to be different because they've experienced, they experience those things at different points in their life. Exactly. Yeah. The time of life when you do those things just reverberates. It means how old are you as a parent? How old are you when you're an empty nester and your kids are are out of the house? There's all of these things that just, it's just different. It's completely different. And this is where there's a lot of generation gaps and I think a lot of misunderstanding too. And this is really my goal in the book is more understanding that we can understand each other better. That grandparents who look at their millennial kids and go, what do you mean you're 28 and not married? What's wrong with you? Well, that's the way it is now. And there's good reasons why it's that way now. Yeah, that's something you do throughout the book. I think you did very good with you. Never like uh, casting aspersions at generations like, well, look at what is wrong with these kids. But you're trying to explain like, well, here's why they make the decisions they do on average. And here are the factors that influence that. I I mean, that's kind of the most important thing, you know, to me in doing this work, you know, is is to get it right. And in getting it right is to at least try, you know, to step back from your own bias because everybody has biases, right? And to try to see what the data is telling you 
And I think that's really key because it's so common in work on generations. First, for it to be very observational, a manager saying, well, this is how young employees are now. Well, why don't we survey the young employees? That might be more informative. Plus, there's so much language that's so negative around generational differences, like, you know, whose fault is this? And which generation can we blame? And my view is these are big cultural changes. That's what leads to these generational differences. We're all in this together. It might be better to step away from that kind of charged language and instead think about what can we do to solve this problem if it is a problem. And let's look at the positives because there's also an enormous number of positives to living right now and with younger generations. There's so many good things, and that often gets left out of the conversation. All right, so let's talk about how increasing technology, this is your main theory, that increasing technology has increased individualism and has slowed down our life strategies, slowed down how much we, you know, grow up basically. Um, and delay, it's even, I mean, it even this carries on into your elder years, like people are living longer, right? Exactly. So let's talk about how this has affected the generations. Right now we've got six main generations in the United States and we got a few greatest generation left. They're not really a, a big cohort anymore. So you focus on the silent generation, the baby boomers, Generation X, Millennials, Gen Z, and then Gen Alpha. They've been called different things. Let's talk about the silent generation. This consists of people born between 1925 and 1945. And they're called the silent generation because a Time Magazine article in 1951 pointed out how there were no young people from that generation stepping into leadership roles. And they just you know, kept their heads down and started families and got to work. What was interesting, the data you highlight suggests that that description isn't very fitting for them. So what are the common traits of the silent generation and some of the misconceptions we have about them? Yeah. You know, so that that portrait from the early 50s did have some accuracy to it. It is true that the silence got married younger than the greatest generation right before them and a lot younger than Gen Xers and millennials would, you know, later in the century. You talk about the baby boom they were the ones who were having a lot of those children and during the baby boom they did you know settle down into careers and families at a relatively young age in that post-war era that's where the label somewhat fits where it doesn't fit is when you look at equality movements civil rights movement feminist movement movement for gay rights it was silence who were leading those movements they were anything but silent you know, these, these are movements we often associate with baby boomers, but in fact, were really led by silence. One way to illustrate that, arguably the two most famous members of the silent generation, Martin Luther King Jr., Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right there, it kind of shows you some of the change that they affected in society. And then also, there's the idea they weren't very politically active because everyone's kind of talked about, oh, there hasn't been a member of the silent generation got skipped in the election of president until Joe Biden, you know, snuck in there at the very end, you know, the last of the silent generation. But you point out data that while they might not have been president during that time, the silent generation, they were filling other roles, political office roles as well, and the, the legislative, the state level, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah, there has been that. And it is it is true. The presidency did skip the silent generation for a long time. It went straight from George H.W. Bush, a member of the greatest generation, although barely by a year, to Bill Clinton, 1946, at the beginning wedge of the baby boomers. Yet, if you look at state governors, if you look at senators, you can see that silence were absolutely politically 
represented very well. They did almost as well as the greatest generation right before them, which is really stunning because the greatest generation did very well in politics, given that a lot of them were uh, war heroes from World War II. Any other traits that make the silent generation stand out from the other ones? Well, you know, they, they are very resilient. Their mental health, by a lot of measures, was better than the greatest generation before them and the boomers after them. Even during COVID, silent generation, they had the worst time during COVID. They were the most likely to die from the disease, get hospitalized. So thus, you know, a lot of people of that age were in much stricter lockdown than younger people. Yet, if you look at their mental health during COVID from a big census survey, they did pretty well compared to younger people. They kept a more positive attitude. They had less anxiety. And it might be that in their younger years that the country was relatively stable. Fewer of them were drafted. Some were drafted to Korea, but a lot less than for World War II and Vietnam. And some people have referred to Silent Generation as the good times generation because of their adolescence and young adulthood in a time of stability in the post-war period. And that may have served them well, even when they face this enormous challenge as older adults. Let's talk about the boomers. So the baby boomers, they get a lot of flack these days in the popular press and on social media. You get the whole OK Boomer and all these books written about how terrible boomers are. What are some common misconceptions that people have about boomers based on the data that you've looked at? I think the biggest misperception is that boomers have it made economically, even more so that all boomers or most boomers have it made economically. And I think that that misperception comes for, you know, somewhat understandable reason. In social psychology, we call it the availability heuristic, that that's what you see. You see the rich boomers and the ones who are in Congress and so on. And yeah, they're probably doing pretty well. But if you look at the way the economy shifted in this country, it really disadvantaged a lot of boomers who didn't have college degrees at a time when that was just shifting under their feet. So by the time Gen Xers came along, there was much more of the accepted idea that, you know, if you want to do well, you should probably go to college. With boomers, there was still, when they were young, the idea that, nope, you can go into these working class jobs and make a good living. And then that changed, and it changed just late enough that it was harder for them to readjust, you know, and for many of them, say, in their, in their 20s. And so there are a lot of boomers who are economically disadvantaged, you know, who didn't get a college degree. Some of them did fine if they didn't get a college degree, but a lot of them found themselves stuck. And there's downstream effects of this too. So this is one of the things that I looked into, you know, as a psychologist, of course, very interested in happiness and mental health. And the trends are really, really stunning that here's one example for the silent generation, very little difference in the percentage who fit clinical criteria for depression from higher income versus lower income. And if you look at it by birth year, those lines just diverge. And by the time you get to the boomers born in the 50s and early 60s, there's this enormous gulf that the boomers with lower incomes 
are much, much more likely to be depressed, like three or four times as likely to be depressed as those who have higher incomes. So we have a big segment of the generation who's unhappy, who's depressed, that has a lot of overlap with the groups that are dying of opioid overdoses. And it really defies this idea that boomers you know, had this economic success and then pulled the ladder up so nobody else could come and that they just ruined everything for everybody. There's a lot of them who are not doing very well. Well, that's an interesting. So, the, okay, the silent generation, what you're saying is there was really no difference between happiness and mental health, whether you made a lot of money or less money. It was kind of even. With the boomers, mental health got tied to income. Is that what happened? Much more so, yeah. There's, there is a little, you know, a little bit of variation in that. Some measures, there's, there was still certainly a gap, even among silence. But that gap really, really grew when you transition from silence to boomers. What's behind that? Is it the technologies? Is it the increasing individualism? What do you think is going on there? Yeah, it's hard to say. I think some of it is due to growing income inequality, that there was kind of a bigger difference, you know, and that difference was felt much more strongly over this time period. And it is, it's a little bit of a mystery. I think this is something we need a lot more research to try to figure out. What is it that led to these diverging paths? If you point out the data shows that a lot of the deaths of despair, people have been talking about opioid overdoses, suicides. Mm-hmm. If you look at it, it's like guys in their 60s and 70s, it's, that's happening too, which is crazy. You, you typically think of overdoses as being a young person's thing, but it's older people. It, it is. And, and, you know, to be fair, this has been something that the boomer generation has struggled with their whole lives. So drug use is just much, much higher among boomers than it was among silence. It's one of the biggest generational differences. Now, a, a lot of that is marijuana, which of course is not going to be behind those deaths of despair for the most part, but it shows up in hard drugs as well. And then these days, that's what you get. You get those overdoses and also alcohol, much more binge drinking and problems with alcohol as the generations of older people turn over from silence to boomers. Another trait that people kind of pin on boomers is that there's a lot of self-focus. What's going on with the boomers and self-focus? You know, the self-focus piece does certainly show up for boomers. You know, if you look in the culture in terms of some of the things that as they were young adults, there's certainly, you know, a a lot um, more focus in the culture on being true to yourself and self-expression and, you know, a, a lot of this individualism. There's also a lot more emphasis on equality. All of this appears, but we don't, see as much evidence for that having an impact on individuals until we get to Gen X. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I can see anecdotally in my own life, like my wife and I, I think it's interesting, our parents, they're boomers and they'll say something like, oh, hey, you're, you know, your third cousin's in town. You should go see your third cousin. Cause like they're like very family oriented. And I think people in our age is like my third cousin, like what? I, I, mean, I saw them when I was four at a family reunion or like boomers are more likely to do family reunions than say like me a millennial. It seems like, you know, it seems like the boomers are more family oriented than my generation. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's something that's often misunderstood. There's sometimes this idea of like, oh, in the sixties and seventies, there was all this self-focus and then that stopped with boomers and it didn't stop with boomers. It 
kept going and building generation after generation. Right, because the technology allowed for that. The technology allows for more individualism. Right. Basically, technology allows people to be more in- independent of their family, and it allows people to have the time to focus on themselves more, as opposed to just surviving. Oh, another thing about the boomers, kind of chameleons in a lot of ways, they started off maybe idealistic, right? Sort of the Woodstock thing. But then in the 80s, they came like these yuppies. That's sort of the popular idea. Is, is there anything to that backed by the data? There, there is some. And it, you know, I think some of that is that with the hippies, you were seeing one portion of the generation. And with the yuppies, you were seeing another. That that's often happens with generations. Maybe in particular with boomers who are, because they were such a big group, there were so many of them, you know, the variations in them, even a small portion of boomers could have a big impact because there were so many of them. But there is some truth to that when you look at political ideology and party affiliation among boomers. There's this just amazing, enormous shift in boomers' political party affiliation, that in the early 70s, 70% of them identified as Democrats, and that had gone down to about 55% by the 80s, and then was below 50% in more recent years. What do demographers attribute that to? Well, there's a couple schools of thought about political affiliation and how it works. So one is that people get more conservative as they get older, and that's part of it. Then there's also generational differences, just even apart from age. The idea is that your politics will be somewhat influenced by the people who were in office, particularly the president who was in office when you were an adolescent and young adult. So that shows up later with Gen Xers as well in terms of influencing their political views. But boomers somewhat defy this because their views changed and their affiliation changed so much over the decades. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits started just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. 
So I use fast growing trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress, had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I've wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on fast growing trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for, turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast growing trees right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants and listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Well, let's talk about Gen X. This is your generation. I remember I was I was like in elementary school, middle school, when you heard a lot about Generation X. But Generation X often gets overlooked. In fact, this is a kind of like a trope you see in social media. Oh, people forgot about Generation X again. Why does Generation X get overlooked? Well, Gen X is a much smaller generation population-wise than the boomers before them and the millennials afterward. They're a generation that is caught in the middle. They are almost literally the middle child of generations right now. You know, they're in between the boomers and the millennials. And they're the middle child in that the middle child always gets neglected. That's the trope. And I think part of it is Gen X kind of like being neglected. They like flying under the radar. And some of it, too is that the cultural changes that define Gen X are more linear. There's not as many sudden changes for them, say, 
you know, individualism is a great example that that was building with the boomers, continued to build with Gen X, and then continued to build with millennials. As opposed to, say, the break between millennials and Gen Z, where did you have a smartphone when you were in high school or not? You know, and that had so many effects, and we'll get to that, right? So I think that's part of it as well, that Gen X is kind of slippery. They're hard to define. I found that in writing this book. I mean, I am a Gen Xer, and this was in many ways the hardest chapter to write. So they are slippery, but what are some of the defining traits that you found in your research based on the data? So one that people love to talk about is our love of shared pop culture, because millennials had some of that, particularly older millennials. We were in a lot of ways the last generation to have a really, truly shared pop culture in terms of there were only three channels, and you watched what was on them. So you know, a lot of us watched the same Saturday morning cartoons, many of which were just terrible, but you know, there was nothing else on, so you watched it. And that theme comes up a lot in pop culture generated um, by Gen Xers. And in that realm, Gen Xers were at the forefront of a lot of the changes around the internet. Uh, A lot of the companies that are still around, like Google and YouTube, were founded by Gen Xers. So other traits, if you look at trust, so trust in other people, this is something that, again, is linear, this kept building. But Gen Xers were the first young adults where pollsters started to notice wait, there's some cynicism here. There's some distrust here in a way that they were not used to seeing among young people, that young people are supposed to be idealistic and they're supposed to be more trusting. And that really shifted with Gen X. So one of the big surveys is of high school seniors, so 18-year-olds, and questions like, would you say that most of the time people try to be helpful or mostly just looking out for themselves? Would you say most people can be trusted or that you can't be too careful in dealing with people? So there's a huge decline in people saying other people be helpful, I can trust other people between the boomers and through the course of Gen X. So this is, you know, the 80s and 90s. All of those went way down. And then trust in institutions, same types of things you start to see that. The trust in government, in the press, even in medicine, just plummets. What was driving that, do we think? So some of it is individualism. You know, I'm not going to trust anybody else other than myself. And just the idea of do experts really know more than me? And that's a good amount is that kind of everyone for themselves attitude. And some of this is also rooted in the internet and in TV and just responding to uh, those mediums, just responding to some of the natural incentives that, I mean, gosh, think about how news changed over the course of the 80s and 90s and 2000s as it moved from the three channels to cable to the internet, just much more driven by what gets viewers, what gets clicks. And that's the lowest common denominator. And then, you know, so it gets the clicks, but then trust starts to erode. Did this cynicism and this eroding trust in government, did this influence the level of political involvement of Gen X? It may have. And that is what you see is Gen Xers as young adults were not voting at anywhere near the rate that boomers were when they were young adults. So a lot of political apathy. Now that turned around as Gen Xers got older and as we transitioned more, especially after the Great Recession, voter participation went up among all groups. People started to become more interested in politics after that time. But 
admittedly, the picture for political involvement for Gen X as young adults is a pretty dismal one. Okay, so Gen X, they just continued the individualism that you really start seeing a lot with the baby boomers and the things that go along with that. Oh, and the other thing you think about Gen X, you pointed out a lot of times when we talk about the self-esteem movement, uh, we typically just talk about millennials, but you highlight this started with Gen X. This is where it started and just got ramped up even more with the millennials. It did, yeah. And I, I think that is definitely worth emphasizing that a lot of these things around having high self-esteem and having high expectations, thinking you're above average, all of this got going with Gen X. And millennials continued it, but you can really start to see it happen with Gen X. And I, I have to say, too, that that is consistent with my own experience as a Gen Xer. When I was a child, I can absolutely remember the beginnings of a lot of that emphasis on just be yourself and self-expression and feeling good about yourself being important and so on that would continue into the 90s and 2000s. All right, let's talk about millennials. This is people born between 1980 and 1994. I'm a millennial. Uh, I was born in 1982. I know a lot of our listeners are millennials too, and they're going to be interested in this. So going along with what you said about the self-esteem movement, starting with Gen X uh, and growing out from there, one of the defining traits of millennials is that they report high self-confidence. What do you see in the data that points to that? Yeah. So just all kinds of things. So thinking that you're above average in your school ability or intellectual ability in your leadership ability and your drive to achieve, there's been this consistent trend from boomers to Gen Xers to millennials of college students and high school students having more self-confidence. And, and it's, it's important to know that that's how the data is. If we're not looking at people at one time, where of course, maybe, you know, 22-year-olds might have outsized self-confidence compared to older people, we're looking at 18-year-olds across time or 19-year-olds across time with these measures. And that it's a pretty consistent trend. And you, you can see it culturally too. The Google Books database allows you to look at words and phrases and how much they've been used in books back to the 1800s. And there's a big rise in words like identity and unique and personalize. And in phrases like I love me or you are special, all of these things became much, much more common over the childhood of Gen X and especially of millennials. Is there anything to the idea that millennials are more narcissistic than other generations? So yes and then no. Uh, is the answer because it's a curve. You don't see this that often, especially with these things around self-confidence, but it is what happened here. So if you look at college students, and I I did this um, back in the mid-2000s, if you look up to then, there's a consistent increase in scores on the most commonly used measure of narcissistic personality traits. And just to be clear, Narcissism is a very misunderstood trait. It's about that oversized self-confidence. It's also about just being very focused on the self, about thinking that you're special. If you ruled the world, it would be a better place. Some people argue about how you measure it, but well, pretty much 80-90% of the studies that have looked at narcissism in the field have used the same measure, so pretty much the two are synonymous at this point. And if you look at that measure there was an increase between college students in the early 80s. So that's going to be late boomers, early Gen Xers. And then it rises 
up until about 2007. So it's going to be like the first half of the millennial generation. So it builds. Then it goes down. Then narcissism scores go down. So we get to the second half of the millennial generation and then into Gen Z. So like say, are college students now more narcissistic than they were in the 80s? No. Were they in the late 2000s? Yes. And is that because just what's happened in between that time? So maybe late millennials, like they experienced a bad economy. So maybe they're less narcissistic. Yeah. So here's my theory. So between that, you know, early 80s to 2007 period, all of this emphasis on the self and the culture was everywhere. So that's clearly going to increase those scores. And it's very consistent with the other data that we have on thinking you're above average and self-confidence and so on. So self-confidence didn't really go down much with the Great Recession, but narcissism did. I'm not exactly sure why. I think, though, the recession was a reality check that maybe we're still going to believe some of this stuff about self-confidence, but maybe we're not actually going to believe we're special anymore. So it kind of cut off the top portion of that, which might have been consistent with narcissism. Then the economy improved, though. So why didn't narcissism go up? That's how we'll get to this later, I'm sure, but that's when the story becomes more about Gen Z, because that's who's transitioning into college after 2011, 2012. Uh, and then there's all kinds of other influences that are going to keep narcissism low or keep it going down. Well, let's talk another thing about millennials you hit on with the data is how they're doing economically. And there's a lot of talk on social media. There's all these memes about millennials are worse off economically than boomers at similar age, right? So there's a meme like, here's my dad at age 25. He's got a house and a car. And then here's me, a millennial. I'm doing terrible. What does the data say? Are millennials actually doing worse than boomers at a similar age? Yeah. So, and I have to emphasize just how pervasive this narrative is. It's everywhere, online, in books. Last night, CNN had an entire hour on how millennials are not doing well economically. So when I was writing this book, one of the first things that I did is to just say, okay, let's go look at median incomes. Is this true? And it's not. And it not only is it not true that millennials are doing badly, they're actually doing better than Gen Xers and boomers at the same age. And these are not obscure statistics. These are the standard statistics from the Census Bureau on median household income in the United States. You, you could find this in 10 minutes. And it's, you graph it, it's extremely clear. Yes, there's some ups and downs with the recession. And yeah, the Great Recession was bad. But since about 2016, 2017, 25 to 34 year olds, 35 to 44 year olds, so these are millennials in these periods have higher median incomes than Gen Xers and boomers did at the same age. So, and, the, and it holds up across everything. That's household income. Personal income looks the same. Wages look the same. The percentage of people under the poverty line is less for millennials in this age group than it used to be. The St. Louis Fed, who got all kinds of press for saying that millennials were falling behind in wealth building, they updated their data. That's no longer true. Millennials are neck and neck with Gen X now in terms of their wealth building. Um, owning a home, that's a very, very common meme online is, oh, millennials are so poor that none of them can buy houses. If you look at the percentage of 25 to 39-year-olds in the U.S. who owned a home and you group it by generation, the difference between boomers and millennials is about two percentage points. That's it. And then the other piece of it with home ownership. Most people buy their first house when they're in, in their early 30s. For older millennials in particular, they were in that age range. 
when houses were a relative bargain, historically speaking, say the late 2000s and early 2010s, right after the housing crash. So Gen Xers buying their first house at that age were buying at the peak right before the housing crash. And the millennials, five years later, were buying at the low point. And if they still own those houses, they're worth a lot more than what they paid for them in 2011. Are these income numbers, have these been adjusted for inflation? Yes. Okay. So why is the common perception out there that millennials are struggling? I mean, this is to say, if you're a millennial listening to this, you you might be struggling. Like, I'm struggling. Okay. Yes, you could be struggling, but you're talking about averages here. Exactly. These are averages. Very important to point out. Right. So what's going on? Why why is there this idea that all, you know, millennials as a whole are, are struggling? So, you know, I think there's a, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, there's some theories that don't really hold up, but there's others that do. There are some good explanations. So one, obviously, is college loan debt. That probably, I mean, as far as we can tell, I think the primary reason why millennials are doing so well economically is because more went to college. It makes sense. College graduates make more money, and that's probably why incomes are so much higher. But that comes with a cost, and that's often college loans. So that's one piece. Another piece is based on gender. So men's salaries are actually slightly worse than they used to be in this age group. Say it peaked you know, in the 70s. Women's salaries are just astronomically higher. So you average it out, you don't see that gender difference. So you know, this is overall just amazing news that young women are making a lot more money, like quadruple as much almost than they used to, say in the 50s. But here's the problem. If you're a part of a heterosexual couple, you have kids. Who's going to stay home with the kids? Well, men still make more than women. So if it's the guy, you're going to lose out on a lot of money. If it's the woman, you're going to lose out on a bigger proportion of your household income than you would have in 1985 or 1965 or even 1995. So I think that's one reason is then you have to pay for childcare. You have to make these tough choices, you know, when it comes to taking care of children. So that's, I think, clearly another reason why millennials, even if they are doing well, may feel more strapped because of some of these expenses. Even if the overall idea, you know, about income is is not true. Okay, so they're making more money, but might be paying more on their student loan debt, or if they have kids, they're spending a lot of money on childcare. Although it is important to point out that there are other things that are cheaper than they used to be when you adjust them for overall inflation. So a lot of things like consumer electronics, furniture, toys, all that stuff we now buy on Amazon that's actually kind of surprisingly cheap used to be much more expensive. And I think the tough thing for young people now is that the essentials, college education, you know, to do really well, housing are more expensive. And these other things are cheaper, but they're not quite as essential. So that is one of the big economic mm. challenges these days for people of all ages, frankly. Right. Health and like healthcare is also- Healthcare is another great example of something that is an essential and is a lot more, more expensive. Okay. So overall, some things are cheaper, some things are more expensive, but overall millennials, they're they're not struggling as much financially as people commonly think. Their median income is higher than previous generations at the same age. That's adjusting for inflation. They're similar to Gen X in terms of wealth building. And I think it's important to point out on that point that that even takes into account 
college debt. So yeah, they're doing they're doing better than we think. So moving on to family life, what does family life look like for millennials? So it starts later. You know, so the slow life strategy means that you get married and have kids later. So, you know, it leads to some it leads to some really striking statistics. So, like if you look at men in their late 20s, in 1970, almost 80% of them were married. In 2020, 27%. That's about as big of a generational change as you ever see that that age of marriage has gone up so much. And then in terms of fertility, people having their kids a lot later. So if you look at the birth rate by age for women, for those in their early 20s, it's gone way down. Also, teen births as well have gone way down. Even births for people in their late 20s have gone down. But where you get increases is people in their early 30s and especially those in their late 30s having children. In general, are fewer millennials getting married and having kids? Yeah. So marriage, yeah, down by a little bit, but having babies is way down. So the story there has been discussed quite a bit that the birth rate started to slide pretty significantly in 2007. You know, it was a recession. The theory was that that birth rate is going to come back up after the economy improved, and it didn't. Not only did it not come back up, it kept going down. And now with millennials aging into their 40s, it's looking likely that there's going to be a lot more millennials who do not have children compared to the previous generations. What about religious life? What does that look like for millennials? So I cover the changes in religion in the millennial chapter just because that's where a lot of the change happened. And this is another example of something that's linear and has affected a lot of generations. But really, really big decline. So let's take, say, 8th graders, 10th graders, 12th graders, and college students. The percentage who ever, ever attend religious services. So that used to be pretty high, 90% in the 70s and 80s. And when millennials were in that age group, that's when it really starts to slide. So the late 90s through the 2000s, and it just starts to plummet. So that 90% in the early 80s for the high school seniors ever attending services goes to about 72%. Now, that's still a pretty high number. Most are, are attending religious services at some point. But if you see it also in those, you say they go once a week, you see it in the percentage who... Uh, believe in God or pray, all of these are much, much lower than they were, say, in the 80s and the early 90s. Gotcha. So declining religiosity, are we seeing that affect other generations as well? And maybe older generations, like are baby boomers dropping out of religion? You can see declines among older people as well. They do show up. But if you look, say, I don't know, I have this one graph from 2018, and there's a pretty big generation gap say, let's take prayer. For boomers, it's almost 90% who ever pray. And then it's about 75 to 80 for millennials. Not enormous, but still, there's you can see the, the, the gap appearing. And I think the other thing that's important to point out is a couple things. So one, there was a theory for a while that, okay, millennials moved away from religion when they were young, but they'll come back. Right when they're older and they have kids, and they didn't. The decline in attending religious services also shows up 
among 26 to 40 year olds. And it looks very similar. So that non-affiliation with religion that was happening during the teen years is persisting as they grow up, get married and have kids. So family life, religion, that, that's that been a big source of meaning for people for millennia. What are millennials replacing family and religion with to find meaning? That's a good question. And I don't think we have the answer to I don't it. I have the answer. Okay. Um, I mean, are, are they working more? Are they consuming? I guess there's no data yet. Well, I mean, it, it, I think it's more, it's almost more of a philosophical question, right? Okay. I mean, if you look at, I mean, because, you know, where they find meaning, you can say, well, where are they spending more time? Yeah, that's, yeah. I guess you could say like where you spend your time and money. Right. Can, yeah. Um, online. I mean, that's yeah. true for all generations, but there have been people who have argued the internet is the new religion. And maybe that's true. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about Gen Z. So I got a son born in 2010. So Gen Z is 1995 to 2012. So he's at the tail end of Gen Z. What are the defining traits of Gen Z? So the generational break between millennials and Gen Z was the most sudden and stark I've ever seen. Because I got used to working with these big data sets. I you know, looked at them a lot and got used to seeing generational changes that were big, but they'd take a decade or two to get there. Then in the data on teens around 2012, things started to change much more suddenly. More teens started to say that they felt lonely and left out, that they felt like they couldn't do anything right, that their life wasn't useful, that they didn't enjoy life. So these are symptoms of loneliness and depression. And at first I thought, okay, maybe a blip, but it kept going. And then it kept going and kept going. And that's what made me and many other people realize, okay, there's a generational break here. We thought millennials were going to last until those born in 1999. Nope, that cutoff is more mid-90s. So the Pew Research Center uses 1997. I use 1995. I've stuck with 1995 because those breaks, especially in mental health and time use, show up for teens around 2012. And so that fits a little bit more clearly in that era. Plus 1995 is the year the internet was commercialized. So it's really shows that technological break as well. So the biggest break between millennials and Gen Z is around mental health. It's around expectations, it's around optimism and self-confidence. So millennials were reaching the peak of that mountain of individualism and self-confidence and high expectations and optimism. And then top of the roller coaster almost what goes up must come down and it came down spectacularly for gen z uh, happiness went down depression went up optimism started to fade pessimism started to become more prominent things like you know, do you have hope for the situation of the world went down you know what are your expectations for your future life those went down so optimism to pessimism so what's what's behind that? I mean, what changed? So for loneliness and depression, I think it's pretty clear that what changed was smartphones and social media and their subsequent effects. So 2012, the end of 2012 was the first time the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. This is also the period when uh, Facebook bought Instagram, when social media use went from relatively optional to virtually mandatory among teens. It's when teens started sleeping less, probably because technology interfered with that. They also started spending less time with each other face-to-face. 
So pretty much every measure we have in these big surveys of teens spending time with each other in person had been going down slowly since about 2000 at the beginning of the internet and then just plummeted after 2010. So the way teens spent their time outside of school fundamentally changed. They started spending more time online, less time sleeping, and less time with their friends face-to-face. And that is not a good formula for mental health or for feeling like you belong. Because social media communication is a poor substitute for actually being with people face-to-face. And if it interferes with sleep, not sleeping enough is a huge risk factor for depression and self-harm. So I think it's pretty clear that that's was at least, especially for teens, the instigating factor. It may also explain the pessimism as well, because depression isn't just about feelings and emotions. It's about how you view the world. It's about cognition. It's about thinking. By definition, depression means seeing things in a negative light. And I think that's why expectations started to fall and why more teens started to be so pessimistic about so many different things. So how is that pessimism, like what are the downstream effects of that? Like how is it affecting other things like work, political involvement, family life? What's the data showing? Yeah. Well, you know, it's hard to tell if this is a direct line of causation, but for political activism, there's actually some upsides if that's what we got from it because Gen Z young adults are voting at a higher rate than young adults before them. Anecdotally, a lot of people talked about this generation being very political and politically involved. And we could definitely see it in the voting statistics. So if that's the case, then, you know, pessimism means you want things to change. There can be some positives to that. Where there are potential downsides is when it's taken more to extremes. And I think the issue is, for pretty much everybody of all generations, but particularly for Gen Z in this current cultural moment that we're in, there's just so much negativity and it is relatively extreme. So there was this one poll that I came across. It was done a couple of years ago and it asked things like this, thinking about the fundamental design and structure of American government, which comes closer to your view, significant changes to the design and structure are needed to make it work for current times versus the design and structure serves the country well and does not need significant changes. 75% of Gen Z agreed that we needed significant changes to the design and structure of American government. About 45% of boomers said the same. So there's a fair amount of negativity among the older generations too, but it's a lot higher among Gen Z. And another question they were asked, do you agree America is a fair society where everyone can get ahead? 65% of Gen Z said, no, it's not a fair society. Then the last one is, do you believe the founders of the United States are better described as villains or as heroes? 40% of Gen Z said villains. Only 10% of boomers said villains. So they're not just negative about times right now. They're negative about things 250 years in the past. And what are the consequences of those views, do you think? So, I mean, I think there's a number of ways this could go. You know, the positive is, as I mentioned, like political activism. From the viewpoint of older generations, that may not be the best if political activism becomes a revolution. And it also may not be the best if you combine these attitudes with depression and nihilism, and then there's the idea of everything is so messed up and we can't do anything about it, which... I think observationally is very, very common on social media. 
you know, it's the um, the meme of the dog sitting in the burning house saying this is fine. It's the dumpster fire idea. It's that we're living in a modern hellscape. It's like this everything is bad all the time, which, again, I think is affecting everybody, but is having a particular impact on Gen Z teens and young adults. And it's like learned helplessness. They have an external locus of control. And they do. We do see that in the data. So there's a question on one of the big surveys. Do you agree? Every time I try to get ahead, somebody or something stops me. And Gen Z teens are more likely to say yes to that than millennial teens were. Is this pessimism? Is this affecting relationship and family formation amongst Gen Z? It very well might. Because when you look at birth rates and you look at fertility intentions, the theme that comes up over and over is that people who are optimistic about the future have children. Gen Z is not optimistic about the future. And that might be why when they're asked, are you likely to have kids, they're less likely to say yes. Now, the majority still say yes, but this statistic and the percentage of teens who say they want to have children had been consistent since 1976. It had barely changed. And then in the transition between millennials and Gen Z, it suddenly started to go down. Interesting. So there could be the pessimism, but also going back to the idea of technology increases individualism. Maybe people are just feeling more individualistic and they think, well, kids, they kind of put a hamper on my myself, so I don't want to do that. You know, if that were true, though, I would have expected that fertility intentions at 18 would have started to go down with Gen Xers mm, and especially yeah. with millennials, but it didn't. They stayed pretty constant until we got to Gen Z. Interesting. What about, so the idea of the slow life strategy, this really peaked with Gen Z. I've noticed this, this is anecdotal, but I noticed a lot of my friends who have kids who are 16 years old, 17, 18, they don't have a driver's license. Yep. I asked my, what's going on with that? Like, yeah, I'm bugging him to go get his driver's, but he won't do it. Is there any data to back up my anecdotal observation? There is indeed. So yes, in that high school senior survey, they're asked if they have their driver's license. And there has been a big, big decline in the number of 18-year-olds, about ready to graduate from high school, who have a driver's license. We have to put this in context, though. But first of all, no, it's not Uber, because you can't take Uber when you're under 18. And it doesn't exist in rural areas, and we see the exact same decline in rural areas and urban areas when it comes to driver's licenses. It's also part of a bigger picture. So there's a decline in teens getting their driver's license. There's also a decline in the number of teens who drink alcohol, who have a paid job, who go out on dates, and who have sex. So these are adult activities. These are things that adults do and children don't. And 18-year-olds, 17-year-olds are less likely to do these things than they were for millennials, Gen Xers, and, and, and boomers. And it, yeah, the technology is driving that. Because I mean, if you're 18 years old today, you don't need to go cruise with your friends or cruise over to go see your friends. You can just get on Snapchat or whatever to talk with your friends. And that, that explains the getting together with friends piece a little bit more and maybe the dating piece a little bit more. It doesn't really explain where there's also been a decline in getting a driver's license. Uh, well, a little bit maybe, but it definitely doesn't explain why there's a decline in getting a job. Yeah. Yeah, why wouldn't you get? I needed a job if I wanted to do anything when I was a kid. When I was a kid, um, but I mean, maybe you don't need a job because, like, a lot of stuff online it's free, right? You can just 
you can play True. video games. Like, yeah. it, like it doesn't yeah. cost as much. More free entertainment. That might be part of it. Yeah. I think it's it's certainly an interaction yeah. between technology and the slow. But a lot of it is the slow life strategy. Yeah. Just people taking longer to grow up. Uh, okay. So then the final generation is Gen Alpha. We don't know much about them yet. They're like still little kids. So we don't know much about them. But I imagine it's more of the same with, of Gen Z. So these are the kids who will barely remember a time before COVID. The oldest were in the lower grades, you know, first grade, kindergarten, when the pandemic hit. They were the those poor kindergartners who were squirming through the Zoom lessons. Their early days in the pandemic, they're going to have some consequences, but kids are resilient. It doesn't have to doom them. The silent generation was another generation born during difficult times, the Great Depression and World War II, and they actually have the best mental health of any other generation. Well, Gene, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Yeah, so the book is Generations. My website is genetwangy.com, so J-E-A-N-T-W-E-N-G-E. And I have a lot of um, like kind of FAQs about generations and um, academic publications and all kinds of other stuff on the website. Fantastic. Well, Gene Twangy, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure as well. My guest today is Dr. Jean Twangy. She's the author of the book, Generations. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about her work at her website, jeantwangy.com. And Twangy is spelled T-W-E-N-G-E.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash generations, where you find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Reminding you to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.